Our scripture reading today is from Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 15. I'm reading out of the Common English Bible. The prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigeneth. Lord, I have heard your repentance, your reputation. I have seen your work. Over time, revive it. Over time, make it known. Though angry, remember compassion. God comes from Timon and the Holy One from the mountain of Paran. His majesty covers the heavens and his praise fills the earth. His radiance is like the sunlight with rays flashing from his hand. That is the hiding place of his power. Pestilence walks in front of him. Plague marches at his feet. He stops, measures the earth, looks out and sets against the nations. The everlasting mountains collapse. The eternal hills bow down. The eternal path belongs to him. I saw tents of Cushnan under duress. The curtains of the land of Midian were quaking. Was the Lord raging against the rivers? Or was your anger directed against the rivers? Or was your fury against the sea when you rode your horses or rode your chariots to victory? You raise up your empty bow, uttering curses for the arrows. With rivers you split open the earth. The mountains see you and writhe. A flood water rushes through. The deep utters its voice. It raises its hand aloft. Sun and moon stand still high above. With light, your arrows shoot your spear at the flash of lightning. In your fury, you stride the earth. In anger, you tread the nations. You go out to save your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you smash the head of the house of wickedness, bearing lay, laying bare the foundation up to the neck. You pierce the head of his warrior with his own spear. His warriors are driven off. Those who delight in oppressing us, those who take pleasure in secretly devouring the poor. You make your horses tread on the sea. Turbulent waters foam. Thanks. Please be seated. We uh, are in a series, Priests, Prophets, and Kings, and uh, we're looking today at Habakkuk, which is a minor prophet, but, uh, and it's the pro- I consider Habakkuk the, the complaining prophet. And so how many people here complain this week about the heat? Anybody? Anybody like, yeah, it was like, it's too hot, and we made complaints about it. So it reminded me of some church, old church signs. Remember the si- old church signs where you could put words up on the sign? And so I came across some of these church signs. I... Uh, the first one, these are all funny, funny ones that I've stumbled across. One that says, you think it's hot here, sign God, right? So that was one on a, a church sign. Another one says, too hot to keep changing this sign, sin bad, Jesus good, details inside. <laughs> I thought that was good. And then my favorite one was actually this one from a Baptist church. Whoever stole our AC units, keep one, it's hot where you're going. So all these church jokes about hot and being hot and we complain about being hot and it's interesting, we live in a culture of complaint, don't we? I mean, we complain about inconveniences, we complain about our comfort. There are all these things that we complain about in our culture that really have to do with just convenience or us being comfortable. But when we look at Habakkuk, his complaint is different. His complaint is a complaint that you and I also have, but it's directed at God. And his complaint is a life or death complaint. It is a serious complaint. It's an issue of harm and things that are happening in his nation. And so there are all these things happening that he's complaining to God about. And so a lot of times what we see in the prophets 
are prophets that speak to people on behalf of God and say God's message to them. But here in Habakkuk, we have the opposite happening. We have Habakkuk speaking on behalf of the people to God and complaining to God. But what he's complaining about is not about simply comfort or convenience. Now, a little history, real briefly. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but in the timeline of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, we had uh, a time of kings. We're talking about priests, prophets, kings. A time of kings, and in, in that king, time of kings, it became a divided kingdom, the divided monarchy. There was Judah and Israel, and Habakkuk is under King Josiah. He's a prophet under King Josiah in the kingdom of Judah, and this is a time period, kind of the last bit of prosperity that the nation was experiencing was part of Habakkuk's life. And now he's having this complaint because what's happening is the people of the nation of Israel is about to be taken into exile and the prophets are saying this is a sign of God's judgment on the nation of Israel. And so that's what's happening here in Habakkuk. But he comes and he makes two complaints to God. And I've simplified these complaints for you because they're complaints that you and I have with God, I would imagine. In fact, do you know it's okay to complain to God? Did you know that? Because sometimes we think, oh, I can't ever complain to God, but Habakkuk does. And that's what I love about Habakkuk is that he's the prophet of complaint, and he complains. And the two complaints he has, the first one is, how long? How long, God, are you going to allow this to go on? How long for this violence and this bloodshed to go on? How long, are you gonna, gonna, how long is this going to last? Did anybody say that the past 15 months? How long, right, God, right? Then, so that's his first complaint. God res- God's response to that complaint was not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. That's the other thing about complaining to God is you might not like what you hear back. So the response of God to the first complaint was, well, I'm going to send this army as a sign of my judgment against the nation of Israel, against the kingdom of Judah, and I'm going to wipe it out. Who wants to hear that? Like, you know, like no, uh, wait a second. That's not why I was complaining. I was hoping that you would answer that prayer differently. <laughs> But then that then informs the second complaint. Habakkuk's second complaint is this one. How could you, God? How could you allow this foreign army to come and take away your people? What kind of God are you? <laughs> That's his second complaint. And God's response is, don't worry, I'm going to deal with them as well. There is judgment against that nation as well, and it will come. So do you hear this, these two complaints? Have you ever said those complaints to God? And, and it's okay if you have, because I think we all ask those questions, right? How long is this going to last? And God, how could you allow it? How could you allow this suffering to take place to your people? How could you allow that? I think they're human complaints, aren't they? <laughs> and even though he's talking on behalf of a whole nation and a whole kingdom, I think his complaints are valid You know, I had a a friend and a former member of a church. His name was Alan. And Alan was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And uh, when we, I would go, I visited him for the first time right after he got the diagnosis. He was at home. He was sitting in a chair. Um, He was able to talk. He was able to eat, everything. But he was starting to lose some of his muscle ability. That's one of the first signs. And, uh, but we had this great conversation. He was in good spirits. And he loved baseball. He lo- he's a big baseball fan. And so we would talk about baseball when I would go visit and talk with him. And then 
after time, and this went on over years. This wasn't just a year. This was multiple years. And I would go visit him, and over time, he, he wasn't able to eat. And then there came a point where he wasn't able to speak anymore. And as he wasn't able to speak, he was actually talking and talking, uh, trying to talk to me through his wife. And his, he would make gestures, and his wife would kind of like interpret what was happening, right? And then after that interpretation time, he came to a point where he actually couldn't sit upright. And I remember the last time that I saw Alan, he was laying in a bed. And the, when he was laying in that bed, um, he couldn't move, he couldn't eat, he had no ability to do anything. But if you talked about baseball, or you turned on the baseball game, you could see his eyes light up. So you knew he was still there. And I remember in those moments, I would say to God, how long are you going to let this happen? Like, it's hard to look at somebody and know they're fully aware of your presence, fully aware of everything that's going on, and they can't respond, they can't do anything. Like, that's suffering, right? And the question is, how long, God, are you going to allow that suffering to go on? And, and then the other question is, like, Alan's a great guy. Like, how could you, God? How could you allow this to happen to him? How could you allow this to happen to this good man, this Christian man, this man of faith? How long and how could you? You ever felt that way when you see suffering? You ever feel those questions come up in you when you face suffering? The good news is God can take it. God is big enough to hear our complaints. God is not going to smite us if we come to God with our heartfelt prayers of complaint, just like Habakkuk. And that's what he does. He, he comes and he complains. But he's complaining on behalf of a whole nation. And it's a reminder, what he does in chapter 3, what you just heard about, what he's doing is he's written, this is actually a psalm. There are more psalms than just in the book of Psalms. This is another psalm in the Bible. Habakkuk's chapter 3 is a psalm. And in that psalm, he's reminding himself of all the good things that God has done for the nation of Israel in the past. And what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to remind, be reminding people and remind myself of all the good things that God has done for God's people in the past so that I can endure the present suffering. So he lists out some, you know, the, how God had delivered by plagues, how God had created the world out of chaos, how God had freed them from Pharaoh and the Exodus story and given them the law on Mount Sinai. He's reminding, in that is all... All what you heard was poetic license of reminding of all the good things, God's goodness in the past. Because in the moment, in the present, they're suffering. And to endure suffering in the present means to remind ourselves of God's goodness in the past. And so that's what he's doing. And every prophet uh, has this in, in them and in the Psalms as well. But the key verse for Habakkuk is this verse, I think, in chap uh, chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Lord... I have heard of your reputation, your goodness in the past. I have seen your work, your goodness in the past. Over time, revive it. Over time, make it known. Though angry, remember compassion. What he's asking for God to do is to remember God's compassion to God's people and to revive God's presence in the land. Right? That's what he's praying for. He's actually praying for revival, reawakening, for the nation through this suffering, right? So in the prophetic message, there's actually a pattern. And the pattern is judgment, repentance, 
restoration. Judgment, repentance, restoration. So if you read the prophets, there are 12, there are 17 prophets in the Bible, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. Here's how to know the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet. It's really simple. Major prophets were, had a lot more to say than the minor prophets. Habakkuk's three chapters. Isaiah, you know, you got what, over 50, almost 60 chapters, I think. I can't remember the exact number. So Isaiah's got a lot to say. That's why he's a major prophet. Habakkuk's got three chapters. That's why he's a minor prophet. That's really the main difference. But they're all prophetic. And in that prophet, in this prophetic role, we see this pattern of judgment, repentance, and restoration. The good thing about the biblical prophets in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well, the prophetic message may be one of judgment, calling for repentance, but it's always, the goal is always restoration. It's not just judgment for judgment's sake. It's not just to point out all the flaws. It's not just to say, you're bad, sin bad, Jesus good, come inside. That's not what the prophets are saying. The prophets, what God is doing is God wants to restore our relationship to God and restore our relationship to each other in, in humanity. So the ultimate goal of the prophetic message, although hard to hear and uncomfortable, is to bring about restoration of relationship. That's the end goal. So we have to keep that in mind because as we read the prophets, we have to remember that's where God is working. That's what God is working towards is restoration. But it's hard to remind ourselves of that when we're going through it, when we're facing judgment or suffering. And not all suffering is judgment, by the way. Let me just say that out loud as well in case you think we're going there. But what that's happening here in Habakkuk is the nation is suffering because of sin in the nation. So this is, this is the thing about prophets is they're talking sometimes corporately on behalf of a whole group of people, even not just as individuals. So some of the judgment against, uh, for example, Babylon is found in the, what's called the five woes of chapter two in Habakkuk. And there's, here's five things the nation of Babylon was doing. There are also some things the nation of Israel was doing that was also bringing about God's judgment. But the nation of, of Babylon, here are the, the five woes about that nation. One, number one, they were piling up stolen goods. They were hoarding everything. They were just amassing more and more stuff. That doesn't, we don't do that as a nation, do we? We don't have, I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic. A little. Number two, they are building a realm by unjust gains. That means they're going and they're using injustices to try and build up their nation. Number three, they build cities and towns by bloodshed, basically by going in and wiping out people groups and then, so they can establish themselves, right, in a, but through bloodshed and injustice. Number four, they're getting others drunk to expose them and exploit them. And then number five, idol worship. Those are the five woes on the nation of Babylon, and some of those would also apply to the nation of Israel. So the reason, that's the reason that God is judging the nation and calling the nation to repentance, and because they're not repenting, then comes the exile. That's the pattern. That's what's going on. So judgment call for repentance because God wants to restore. And so because the people are not repenting, okay, well, we got to do something else to get to restoration, right? And so in step, this prophetic message and the prophets speak in this direction. But the thing is that I think hard for us to understand in the prophetic word 
for us is that you and I, we're very, the one thing about us being Americans and United States citizens, we're very individualistic. Everything is individualized. And for us to see, we see ourselves very individually in relationship to God, and it's hard for us to see that we could also corporately be in relationship to God as a nation, right? I do realize it's the 4th of July, my apologies. I didn't set this up. I started studying Habakkuk, and then it dawned on me, you know, today I'm going to preach this on July 4th, right? Oh, yeah. It's a holiday. We celebrate our freedom, our, our nation, which we do. This is still the, the United States is still the greatest place to live on the planet. Still a great place to be. So let's not get that wrong. Let's not miss that. But part of what I'm hearing in Habakkuk is this idea that Habakkuk is, and God is calling the nation of Israel to repent, <laughs> Because of all this, not because of individual sin, but because of this corporate sin. And Babylon is also going to be called to repent and called to judgment because of this national sin. You know, we can pick on the Canadians, can't we? Any Canadians here today? Do we have any Canadians? Sorry. My apologies. Eh? I'll just say. Um. But Canada is wrestling nationally with some news that came out just this past week. Uh, they've been uh, finding unmarked graves of, in, of uh, indigenous children in resi- around residential schools in Canada. So there was residential schools set up in Canada by, uh, by Catholic and Christian organizations that then these children were taken from their families, put in the schools to be kind of re-indoctrinated from their indigenous lifestyle and this happened all the way up into the 1970s. And now they're finding these unmarked graves of children. Their parents, their families may not have even known that they ever died. And that there's been, there's been uh, accusations of, of uh, abuse in those schools. And that these children died at, under, the, under the oversight of these schools. And so this is coming out. They're finding this in multiple places throughout Canada through these residential schools. And obviously... The United States has said we're going to, the United States is going to look into this as well as a part of our nation. But that's not, you know, you and I, you know, an individual Canadian did not, do, did not directly do anything to make that happen, right? But the nation of Canada allowed that to happen. The nation of Canada within its history allowed for peoples to be exploited. And we could even say that for our own nation. So there's this part of us that we, where individually we may not feel that we're responsible, right? Are we corporately as a whole? Are, are we beneficiaries today of injustices of the past, right? That's part of what we have to wrestle with. You know, when Isaiah, another prophet, one of the major prophets, how do you know it's a major prophet? A lot of stuff to say, all right. But in chapter 6... Isaiah faces God, and we sing, holy, holy, holy. And what is Isaiah's confession at that moment? Do you remember what it is? Do you remember the whole confession? He starts out, the first part of his confession is this. I am a man of unclean lips. Individual responsibility. And the second part is this. And I come from a people of unclean lips. Corporate responsibility. 
So what Isaiah as a prophet is saying is that not only am I individually responsible for my own sin, I'm also a part of a people group that has sinned. And I'm responsible for that. I'm responsible because I'm a part of that group, right? And so there's this full awareness and, and really call to repentance in Isaiah and in the prophets, right? So the prophets are actually calling us to repentance individually and as a group, corporately. And I think we just have a hard time. Let's just admit that we have a hard time with that as individualists, right? Because we're individualistic. That's who we are. That's how we were raised. That's how we were, that's part of our culture. So you think about this pattern of, of uh, you know, judgment. How many people like to be judged? Nobody. Judgment, repentance. See, that's what God's looking for, the repentance part. But the repentance is to lead us to restoration. Why, what is the reason? How, when, when that complaint comes from Habakkuk to God, he says, you know, you're going to send this nation as judgment against our nation. How could you? How could you do that, God? What's the answer? Well, I came across a concept that I, is fairly new to me, and I was reading it in a book called A Cry of the Soul. And actually, it's a prophet. It comes out of the prophet Ezekiel. But here's what, what it is. It's called redemptive abandonment. Redemptive abandonment. That God would abandon to bring about redemption. That God would abandon a nation or an individual or someone to bring about their restoration. Does that make sense? Let me give you a little quote from Allender and Longman in their book, The Cry of the Soul. I'm not, you won't see the whole quote, but you'll see the second half of the quote when I get to it. It says, left in, alone in a world of trouble, what could be worse? But God is cunning. He knows how to get our attention. Rather than let us wallow in the mediocrity of complacency, he lets us experience what it would be like to live without him. He abandons us in order to shatter our illusions and then lead us to a deeper relationship with him. Do you see what God's trying to do in that? God is trying to lead us into a deeper relationship and to restore our relationship with God. And that's so important for us to wrestle with, right? You know, that that's the goal of the prophetic word, that God would abandon God's people. Did God ever abandon anybody? Who did God abandon in the New Testament? Jesus, right? God abandons Jesus on the cross to bring about our redemption and restoration. He abandons our brokenness, our sin. He turns away so that we could be restored. That's redemptive abandonment. Now, I realize today is 4th of July, and this is not a celebratory question. And again, I would say this is a great place to live. Yet I began to wrestle with this question this week as I was preparing this sermon, and I kind of was going, God, you really want me to ask this question on the 4th of July? Because it's the 4th of July, we should be celebrating, right? So I, I, I was internally, I'm just going to be honest, I was a little internally confused, like I, maybe I should just skip this over. <laughs> but that wouldn't be very prophetic, would it? 
So here's the question. Would God redemptively abandon our nation to shatter its illusions to lead us to a deeper relationship with him? Would God do that to our nation? (laughs) Yeah. That's the conclusion I've come to. Is that yes, God would do that because God did it to Israel. (laughs) God's chosen people. God did it to Jesus. His own son. Who's to say God wouldn't do it for us? Not because God just wants to be judgmental. (laughs) But because God wants to bring us into deeper relationship with God and with one another. That's God's goal, right? That's always been God's goal, is to be with God's people, to be covenanted with us. So what do you do when you're in that place of suffering and problems and chaos and COVID-19 and city going, blowing up, which we saw happen this way? What do you do as a person of faith? Well, we do what Habakkuk did. We can complain, right? We can complain. (laughs) Say, God, how long and how could you? But here's the other thing that Habakkuk did. Habakkuk went, before we get to chapter 3, what Habakkuk does is he goes to a watchtower and he sets himself up in a watchtower and he watches and he waits for God. That's what he does in this, this time, because he's waiting. He's waiting for God to show up. He's waiting for God to revive. He's waiting for God to re- reawaken, right? And here's what he says in two, chapter 2, verse 4. And this is how the NIV says, See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. You ever heard the phrase, the righteous will live by faith? That's what quote from Habakkuk. So when you see that in the New Testament... They're quoting the prophet. When you see Martin Luther in history quoted the Protestant Reformation, he's quoting Habakkuk. What he's quoting is this idea that we watch and we wait faithfully for God's redemption and restoration. That's what we do. Or if we need to repent, we repent. So we're going to do something, right? You know, there was a denomination that sent missionaries to a country that was predominantly Muslim. And they wanted to bring the gospel to that country. And after decades of work in the country, the denomination had five small churches to show for all their work and all the money and resources they spent to try and bring the gospel. And they were talking about removing the missionaries from the country, reassigning missionaries to other countries and other places. And they were just going to talking about withdrawing from that country because it was just too hard. There was no, not a lot of fruit, so to speak. So the missionaries gathered with some of the Christians in the country, and there were 14 of them that gathered one night in a home for prayer. And they prayed, and they began to pray not just that evening, but they prayed all through the night. They prayed, they prayed all night long. And as they prayed together, they said that God began to reveal things to them that they needed to repent of. That they needed to repent themselves before God could do something. And so they began to confess their sins to one another and look at all the ways that they were, they were preventing the awakening. 
And after that night of prayer, they became more bold in their, in their, in their work. And four years later, 132,000 people professed faith in Jesus, and there were 156 churches. I want you to notice who repented. Not the people in the country, not the other people they were trying to reach. The missionaries themselves. The church itself. That's where that happened. That's where awakening and restoration begins with God's people. Because until we're reawakened and revived, right, how can it ever reach our nation? How can it ever make an impact? So I'm going to invite us to this table today, but I'm going to invite us to come to it a little differently. I'm going to invite us to come to this table today with confession, with repentance, maybe corporately. And I'm going to invite you to pray. I'm going to leave some space for us to pray this morning around this table because this table represents for us as Christians restoration. Represents restoration, redemption, reconciliation with God and with each other. So what's getting in the way of that for you today? What's getting in the way of that for our nation? What's getting in the way of God's work in us individually and in us corporately as a whole? I think it's a good day to celebrate the 4th of July. It's also a good day to pray for God to show up in our nation, to reawaken us to the good things that God wants to do again. So I'm going to invite us to pray right now, and then I'll wrap up the prayer. But I'm going to actually leave room and silence if you want to pray silently within your own heart. If you feel led by the Spirit to pray out loud, you can pray out loud today. I don't have to be the only one praying here. So let's pray together. God, we come to this table of restoration. We come to this table of reconciliation where we are forgiven. We know of your goodness and your compassion and your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that this table has been prepared for us by Jesus to restore us to you. So Lord, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us, your church? Would you help us to see the things that are getting in the way of our country, our nation being reawoken and revived for you? Would you help us to see the things we need to see today? And so t t right now, God, we bring our hearts, we bring our minds, we bring our prayers to you for our nation, for ourselves in this moment. God, help us to see our blind spots. Help us to be humble. Forgive me, forgive us for thinking we know better. Amen. God, thank you that when we confess our sins, you are just and righteous and you forgive us our sins. And this bread and this cup today reminds us of your love and compassion for us when we do get it right, when we are broken, when we are flawed, and, and we can even come to this table with our complaints of how long and how could you. And yet, God, you know exactly what that's like when you sent your son to a cross 
And we pray, God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here. Pour your Holy Spirit out on your church. Pour your Holy Spirit out on these gifts of bread and cup that we may be for this world the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our workplaces, so that we can go from here today and be your people, faithful, watching, waiting, restored, forgiven. And Lord, we pray together that prayer that you've taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.